0: Awesome. Well, thank you, worship team. And, uh, and truly, thank you, worship team. Excellent job. Thank you for leading us so well. And uh, I'm excited to tell you about our Advent series for this year. I confess off the top, it's, it's a little different. Um, there will be times in this series when, when it maybe doesn't feel particularly uh, Christmassy uh, in terms of what you might expect. Uh, but the theme is Promise Keeper. And to pull back the curtain, one of the reasons why we're, we're tackling the series this way this year Is because I was looking at our preaching calendar from this last year and our preaching calendar heading into the new year, and I realized we're spending a lot of time, as we should, in the New Testament. But I wanted to take an opportunity to jump out and to scale up and to look at all of Scripture and to ask what does the Bible say? What does the Old Testament say about Advent? What does it say about the coming of Jesus? And so I have this idea to pick up these promises. And as you read through the Old Testament, you do find these promises. And it's almost like this, this thread. And in the Old Testament, you've got all these dangling threads. And it's not until Jesus comes when, when this thread is picked up and, this thread is, and they're all brought together and they're tied and you see it all lands here on Christ. And as I read through the Old Testament, that's kind of one of the images in my mind is all of these various strands coming together in Jesus. So I, I was visioning through that, and I was talking to uh, Aaron Reed, and Aaron Reed so graciously said, well, okay, I've got an idea for the stage, and so the Reed family put this all together, and you could see these threads that they, they made this, that thread coming together on Jesus and all of this is fantastic. Thank you for your hard work. And, and so as you, as you look at these beautiful creations, I hope that they'll remind you of these threads that are weaving through Scripture. And so many times it looks like God has forgotten this promise. You find promises in the Old Testament and then you'll wait hundreds, you wait a thousand years and you don't see any answer. And you wonder, did God forget His promise? Well, guess what? Our God never forgets His promises. He's a promise keeper. And so today we're going to be looking at a promise that we find in the very beginning of the Bible. You can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. You can start there. And as you do that, I'll say I've been struck over the years by the fact that uh, Christmas is just an, it's an interesting, challenging time in terms of the rela- relational dynamics in the church. For some of you, this is the most wonderful time of the year, and you're with your family, and everything is just rainbows and sunshine. It's glorious. You're sitting by the fireplace. Uh, for some of you, Christmas is one of the hardest times of the year, and you dread it. Because so many of the things that are celebrated at Christmas time in our culture, things like family and things like generosity, uh, things like sharing a nice meal, are just not parts of your life. Maybe you're single or maybe you've lost a loved one, and Christmas becomes a very dark time for you because it's a time when you realize that things aren't the way that they, they should be. Everything that you see in the commercials and on the videos and the programs tell you that, that there's something that you don't have and that leaves you feeling pretty broken and i understand that as as best as i can from where i'm standing i can understand that would be really difficult but here's something that i could encourage you with the christmas that we see in scripture you know what it's what it's truly about is actually something that i would argue you can't truly appreciate until you've seen something of that darkness until you've seen something of that longing for something that you do not have Until you've seen something of the brokenness of the world. It's when you see that darkness, that brokenness, that longing, that you're prepared to see what Christmas is all about. That beautiful Christmas carol, O Holy Night, says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. I had to look up pining. What does pining mean? It says, To pine is to suffer a mental and physical decline, especially because of a broken heart. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, longing, suffering, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And I'll tell you, with each passing year, those lyrics ring truer and truer in my heart. The coming of Jesus was like the coming of rain after a thousand year drought. That's true in the Bible. That's true in your life. And maybe you're here today and you've been living in a thousand year drought. And it's parched and it's weary. And you are laying in sin and error. You're pining. You're longing. You're expecting, hoping for something and you don't even know what that something is. And I want to tell you today that apart from Jesus, there is an unescapable weariness in life. But in Him, Praise God, there is hope for the weary soul. And that's what we'll be seeing over the next few weeks. So turn with me in your Bible to Genesis. You should, have, you should be there now. The first promise is in chapter 3, verse 15. But before we read this promise, we're going to have to do some preparation. This first promise that we'll consider is an, is an interesting one. It's a curious place to start because it's not a promise made to man. It's not a promise made to Adam or to Eve. It's actually a promise that's made to the serpent, a promise that's made to our enemy. And that's the first promise that points us forward to the coming of Jesus. But if we're going to understand what that promise says, then we're going to need to consider the the background of this promise. The promise we're going to be considering was made after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and introduced sin into our world for the very first time. We won't understand the glory of this promise unless we do an overview to understand something of what we had and what went wrong. So that's our outline. We're going to spend most of our time this morning, before we even get to the promise, we're going to spend most of our time considering what we had and what went wrong. And then we'll conclude by landing on this beautiful promise. What we had. As odd as it sounds, I would argue that you cannot understand Christmas if you don't understand the Garden of Eden. What did life look like before we fell into sin? What, what is this world supposed to be like? What is it that we're supposed to have? What did we have? Well, the first thing that we want to see here is that we had eternal life. That's what we had. So look at Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, which is remarkably generous, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What we learn there in that promise, outside of God's generosity in this one rule that God's put in place, what we learn there is that death comes as a result of sin, of disobedience. Meaning, before that sin, before that disobedience, there was no death. All death is the consequence of sin. That's what we're learning in that passage. So then, to, to follow that a strand further, that means that death is an abomination. It shouldn't be this way. There shouldn't be death. Death is here because of sin. And anyone who has ever lost a loved one can attest to this truth. It's a universal truth. Death is an abomination. So when we lose someone, we feel something deep inside of us. a, A deep sense of frustration. A deep sense of anger. A deep sense of despair. And something inside of us cries out this isn't right. It shouldn't be like this. And, and the Bible says, you're exactly right. It should not be like this. It shouldn't be like this. You weren't made for this. And sometimes in our culture, it feels as if, and I, I use culture broadly, I'm not pointing at any one particular person, but sometimes doesn't it feel as if we're supposed to make peace with death? Like we're supposed to just embrace this. You know, we don't call it a funeral. We call it a celebration of life. And we talk about it. It's just this thing that we do and we we neuter it as if it's just it's just a thing you know sometimes you go to the grocery store and sometimes you die no the bible says this in 1st corinthians 15:26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death meaning what death is our enemy it's not something that we make peace with It's not something that we just casually brush aside. No, death is your enemy. You are an eternal creature. You were made to live forever. That's why you have a longing for eternity in your heart. That's why death makes you feel the way that it does when you see it and you push back against it because God made you to live forever. That's what we had before Adam and Eve rebelled against God. That's what we lost in the fall. But we had eternal life. That's the first thing. Second, I want you to see, we had dominion. So look at Genesis 1, to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I want to focus in on a theme here, however. It talks about how we are made in the image of God. And if you've come to the Life Together program for the last two weeks, in our breakout, we've been talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. And there's, there's a lot that you could unpack even in that one expression. But I'd say the main takeaway that we should see is this idea of, of authority. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, a king was said to be in the image of God. Which meant that the king, when he spoke, he spoke with the authority of his God. And when he acted, he acted with the authority of his God. He was a vice regent for his God. And that's kind of the idea that we're seeing here that God made man in his image to resemble him to the world. That's why you exist to resemble him to the world, to to go out on his mission and to do his work on his behalf, to resemble him to the world. We are image bearers, which means, according to the Bible, you are not just another animal. Which, boy, that should shape our anthropology, shouldn't it? It should shape the way that we see ourselves and we see one another. See the person struggling with homelessness on the street, the person in the womb, the person living in the developing world. We, each and every one of us, the person we disagree with on the internet. We are image bearers of God. Each and every single one of us. Walking, talking, representatives of the God of the universe. It's incredible. And He's called us to exercise dominion in this world. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, but God has given them this commission to extend out His rule into the world. To to cultivate the world. To move out the boundaries of the garden. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. To fill the earth and subdue it. To have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. He makes them to work, to cultivate, to extend. I want to pause there because I want to make sure that you hear that and think about that. We were made to work. You were made to work. Now we hate work so often. So often, don't we spend our lives doing everything we can to not work? You know, sometimes some of you just have jobs that really suck the life out of you. You know, the curse of Adam. Do you remember what his curse was? The, the, the ground became cursed. That now, as he does his working, there's going to be weeds and the ground is going to be hard and he'll be toiling by the sweat of his brow. Our relationship with work now has been distorted, but we were made to create. And I'll tell you, this is again a universal truth, though sometimes we suppress it. But don't you see it in springtime? As people rush into their gardens, looking at Brenda, springtime. All of a sudden, all the gardeners—you can just—they they smell it in the air, and they're all out, and they're they're beaming, and they're tilling the soil, and they're they're pushing back all the brush, and they're preparing space for their beautiful garden that they're going to cultivate. And nobody's forcing them to do that; they just—they love it. And you see it in the workshop when that man takes his week off of work, and what does he do with his week off of work? He's he's. Polishing and staining a table. He's gonna. He's preparing this table for his family. He's so excited about this table. You see it in the kindergarten classroom when all the little ones have got their favorite crayons and they're sitting down and they're they're making a, a family portrait. And here's dad, this big box. Here's dad, and they've got their tongue out like Michael Jordan. And they're doing, and the, and nobody's forcing them to. Do, they're just. They love to create. There's something in us. We're creators and cultivators and makers. That's why retirement can be so difficult for so many people. When suddenly we find ourselves sitting and, and you talk to any retired person and they say, I'm just looking for something to do. I want, Because I was made to make. I was made in the image of God and our God is a creative God. He's overflowing with this creativity. And we had that. And work was never supposed to be our enemy. And it was never supposed to Break us down and leave us weary and exhausted and drained and used. It was supposed to fill us to the brim as we glorified God in it. We had it. We had dominion and purpose. Third, we had intimacy. So before the fall, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with one another. Look at Genesis 2, verse 25. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And all the teenagers in the room giggle. This isn't about body image, though. I'd argue this is about so much more. This is about knowledge. It's about intimacy. Adam knew Eve completely, entirely. And he loved everything about her. And Eve knew Adam fully and truly and entirely. And she loved everything about him. And he knew that he was fully known. And she knew that she was fully known. And they were not ashamed and they weren't hiding because there was nothing to hide. They had intimacy. We were made for that. Now immediately after they sinned, they experienced shame. So if, look at Genesis 3, verse 7. So this is after their fall into sin. text says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. So because of sin, even our closest relationships, even my relationship with my Eve, even our relationships with our parents and our siblings are tainted by shame and distrust. We've become hiders. We conceal things from one another. We realize now that there's a great risk of being fully known by another. There's a great risk of opening myself up for people to see me. Because I see myself, and as I see myself now, because of sin, I see all kinds of things that I don't want anyone else to see. And so I keep everybody at an arm's length. And isn't that the story of how we live our lives? But, and deep down I would argue that we all sense this to be true, it isn't supposed to be this way. Because deep down we all want to be known. We all want to be safe. We all want to love someone truly and to be truly loved by them for all of who we are because that's what we were made for. That's what we had. And then fourth, we had God. And I don't want you to mishear that as if to say we don't have God now. But we had God in a way that was unlike anything that we could even comprehend now, you know, today we of course if you're here and you're in Christ, you've put your trust in Christ, he's filled you with his spirit. The spirit of God lives in you. So do you have God absolutely. But boy Adam and Eve were walking in the garden with the God of the universe and his presence was undiluted. There was no sin, there was nothing to separate them from the glory of God. And can I suggest something this morning? None of us have any kind of category to to picture that in our minds, to even long for it appropriately. Everything we've talked about thus far, you can put some kind of category together in your brain, couldn't you? Talk about eternal life, and you think about how awful death is, and you think about the longing for life, and we talk about dominion, and you think about, yeah, what it means to work and to love it, and oh, and I can, I can picture that. And we talk about intimacy, and you think about your closest friendship and your spouse, but then we talk about the undiluted presence of God, and our brains go, what, what would that even, how do... What would that be like? Do I want that? You do, by the way. But what, what would it look like? What, am, what are we missing? What can we look forward to? And if I could just help you to create something of a category in your mind, and this is simply to use the imagery that another brother has used for us. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John, he's given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth and what it will be like when we're in the presence of God again. And here's the image that he sees. And here's what he tells us. Revelation 21, verse 22-23. to 23, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So he, as we try to wrap our minds around it, John says, what's it like? It's like, you don't, you don't need the sun anymore. The glory of God illuminates everything. Everything that is wrong with the world. All the sin, all the shame, all the mess. It is removed as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. It can't be there because the glory of God is casting out all the darkness. Like this little candle would cast out the darkness in this room. Only imagine the candle. Was the sun in this room? Well, that would be dangerous if the sun was in this room. It would be dangerous if the undiluted presence of God was in this room. That's the point. His glory is unlike anything that we can even wrap our minds around. But we had it. (laughs) We had it. We were made for it. In fact, that is your greatest need. It's the greatest need that many of us in this room probably have never even put our finger on. It's the need we're always trying to meet by putting other things as gods in our lives. Well, perhaps if I make my children my God then if I put them at the center, then all of my fulfillment will... Perhaps if I put my spouse at the center, or my, if I put my career at the center, if I, my, my money at the center, my pleasure at the center, my rest at the center, and yet nothing can ever bear the weight of being the very center of your life. It always disappoints you. It always lets you down. Do you know why? Because it's not God. And you were made for Him. You were made to know Him, to live with Him, to love Him, and to be loved by Him. And I want to, just before we go further, and, and we're going to move on, I do want to take a moment to draw your attention to the beauty of what God's Word says you were made for. The beauty of what God's Word says we had and what it points forward to. And I want to just contrast just for a moment, not to be argumentative, but, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with what the Prophet Muhammad teaches about heaven And and perhaps you've heard of of his hadith where he says that there's going to be 72 virgins for you in heaven. And and the heaven that Muhammad would propose is a heaven that caters to the sinful part of me. The indulgent, taking part of me. But it's not the heaven that I know that I truly need. Or the heaven of Buddhism. The nirvana. The place of complete self-forgetfulness. It's essentially... Non existence, and inwardly, I just know that's not what I need to be free from pain is to be free from love, is to be free from all of it, it's to not exist, and that's not what I need. And for the atheist, which caters to the realism in me, which says, Listen, buddy, this is as good as it gets, so do the best with what you got because when we die, it's done. And they say that, and then the part of me, again, the, the glass half empty part of me says, Well, perhaps that's true, and perhaps I just need to try and make the best of this life. But then there's something inside of me that says, That can't be true, though, because I've got these longings for something more, and where did they come from? God's word says, It's beautiful. He says, You know what you were made for? Life, and creativity, and love, and relationship with me. That's what you are made for, that's what you had, and that's what you will have. And I read something last night. I want to read this quote to you from C.S. Lewis, and then we'll move on. But it's a powerful quote. It's from The Problem of Pain. It's quoted here by John Piper. It's not on the screen, so you'll just have to listen. He says, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul. The incommunicable and unappeasable want. The thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we will still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life is an unattainable ecstasy. It's hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it. I, just, I think he captures that so beautifully. Just this sense that we were made with a longing in our hearts to return to Eden. A longing in our hearts to have restored to us all that we have lost. But it begs a question, Is our second question. What went wrong? So we had it. So that's great. Well, then why are we here today talking about darkness and talking about weariness? Why are you sick and congested? What went wrong? Well, to answer this, let's jump back to the very first verse in the Bible. So it's Genesis 1, verse 1. If we want to make sense of what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, then we need to start right here. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is where our story begins. So here's a question: Are we living in a in a beautiful cosmic accident? Is that what this universe is? Are we here today because of uh, just a, a beautiful collision of circumstance and an infinite amount of time? Is that why we're walking on this? floating ball in the universe today. This is the worldview that shapes our culture. It's the worldview that shapes the way that your neighbor thinks about the world. Perhaps it's the worldview that shapes the way that you see the world. It's the water we're swimming in. But the Bible challenges our preconceptions right here in the opening verse. In the beginning, God. See, everything that we know and love in the world was created by God. The galaxies and the animals and the sunset and the ocean and your children and you and me and everything that we love—it was made by Him. God is the Creator and Sustainer of every one and everything, and because God is the Creator, He makes the rules. And this, by the way, is where the, the petulant uh, child in me bubbles up, and perhaps the petulant child in you, because this is—we don't like rules. My kids don't like rules. And and when I impose rules upon them, everything inside of them cries out, You're you're trying to rob me of joy, Dad. You're trying to rob me of you won't let me put my fork in that outlet because you don't want me to have joy in my life. I'm sure of this, Dad. You won't let me stay up until one AM because you don't want me to have a full life, Dad. And that's that is the attitude of every child, and whether you have children or not, we've seen this, have we not? It's just how it is. We don't like rules. And we don't grow out of it, do we? God has given us His Word. He has spoken into our life with rules. He's introduced Himself to us as our Father who art in Heaven. He's shown us His love for us by sending His own Son to die in our place. He has shown His trustworthiness, His loveliness, He is our Father and His rules are good. But we struggle with those rules. We push against the rules. But we live in His house. We can't even draw a single breath apart from His sustaining power. And yet, though we're creatures and though God has proven His trustworthiness, His goodness, His wisdom, and all of His rules are an overflow of His love and His wisdom and His perfection, even still, we thumb our noses at Him And we tell him, I'm going to do it my way. And we learn this from our father, Adam. So now we're going to read our longest section today. This is from Genesis 3. If we're going to ask the question, what went wrong? Well, we should turn right to the place where everything fell apart. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So, here we see the descent into sin. And this is our story. I want you to notice how the enemy works, because it's not as if he he dropped this game plan in the garden. This is the way that he works today he approaches and he asks a question. He says, did God actually say? And as he asks that question, you can hear the, the insolence dripping off of it. And what he's doing in that question is he is trying to elevate Eve above God's commandment. So here's God's Word, and it's good, and it's right, and Eve is living under it, and life is going as it should because God's Word is good for us. But, but the serpent comes, and he, he tries to lift Eve up as the, as the judge of the Word of God. Did he actually say that, Eve? And by the way, he did that with Eve, and he does that with every single person in this room. And I could list the five things in my life where I hear the serpent whispering in my ear, did he really say that, Levi? You're going to live under subjection to that rule? Don't you think it would be don't you think it would be better if don't you and he's and he's trying to lift us up and he's doing that with each of us in this room. There are things in God's word where the enemy he sees this opportunity to, to lift us up as the judge, as the ruler, as the one who will stand in authority over God's word and say, No, this is wrong. That's how he works. He moves into his second question and he undermines the integrity of God. He says, You will not surely die. He's not going to follow. He didn't mean that. He's not going to follow through on that. And then he finishes by casting doubt on the motives of God. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the serpent says, He's withholding from you. And isn't that, isn't that the most effective lie that he whispers in all of our ears? He's withholding from you that relationship on the other side of God's boundary, that's where your happiness really lies. That lust, that thing you shouldn't be watching over there, that's where your fulfillment lies. That greed, that that money hoarding, that gluttony, that living to fill your face, that pride, that arrogance, That woman who's not your wife. That man who's not your husband. Your happiness lies over here. Do you really believe what God says about sexuality? Do you really believe what God says about your wallet? And He whispers these lies in our ears. And I have no idea what lie He uses for you. But this is how He operates. One author rightly notes, the tempter targets the Word of God. That's what He does. That's what He did. It's effective today, isn't it? So many times, and and perhaps even for us on on a weekly basis, we find ourselves being lifted up, giving ourselves permission to stand in authority over the Word of God and to say, erase, disregard, not today. And it worked in the garden. In that moment, Adam and Eve rejected the Word of God. They embraced the lie of the evil one. They distrusted God even though He'd never done anything to... Prove his untrustworthiness. They disobeyed God, even though he had blessed them with overwhelming generosity. And the root of their rebellion and the root of all rebellion is a desire to dethrone God so that we can be gods unto ourselves, because don't we really know what's best? And that's the heart of the rebellion that we're all a part of, because we're all born in Adam. It's the rebellion that is that bubbles up under the surface in our hearts. The cosmic mutiny that we've all played our part in. And this cosmic tyranny led to the fall. When we brought sin into God's perfect world, we came under a curse and everything changed. And the life that we're living in now and the world that we see around us now is a result of this fall. We lost eternal life. We lost dominion and purpose. We lost intimacy, as it should be. And we lost God, most of all. And... Genesis 3 ends, and I'll read it for you. It ends with this terrible scene. He drove, he being God, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. this is the story of our rebellion. Merry Christmas. (laughs) This sermon probably feels out of place. And I suspect the following three sermons will as well in an Advent series as we are. But I want to tell you today that in the center of humanity's darkest moment, at the heart of our darkest story, and by the way, if if you were God or if I were God, wouldn't this be the end of the Bible? See you later. Like, this he gives them everything. God has given us everything. And then we look up at God and say, forget you, I could be God. That should be the end of the story. Fire and brimstone and death and seal. I'm gonna, we're going to start again, but it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning of a story that blows our minds. A story that reveals, actually more than even the first three chapters of the Bible, that reveals God's indescribable love and mercy. And in the beginning of this story, we find this promise. Promise of Advent. So look with me now to this promise. After all that time, we're now turning to our text for this morning. But as I said, most of our time was devoted to the intro. But here as we come to our close, I want to land on this promise and show you why it's such good news. It's in Genesis 3, verse 15. God turns to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pause there. Now, I've been a Christian for a while and I've heard so many sermons preached on this that it feels commonplace to me. There could be someone here who's hearing that for the very first time. Imagine you're reading through Genesis 3 for the very first time. It would be very easy to rush past that verse and go, what? And move on. It, if, if you were to stop for the very first time of reading that, if someone were to pause you and say, hey, that verse right there is one of the top ten most important verses in all of the Bible, you might, you might be a bit confused. And then if I were to double down and say, in fact, that verse right there Really sets the framework for the entire Bible, and dare I say, the framework for our entire existence. Again, they might say, "What? Hmm. What is it that you mean?" Well, I'm not exaggerating when I say that this verse is that important. We learn here that there is a battle that is being waged. So it sets the tone that there is now a battle: the serpent and the woman, his seed and her seed. A battle is being waged, and we're going we're to watch that trajectory all through the Bible, and we're going to watch it all through the news, and we're going to watch it all through even our own personal lives. This battle between the darkness and the light, between good and evil. The serpent, the, the devil, he's at war with humanity. Now, I want to say something very clearly right here because you could fall into error if you mishear me. He's at war with humanity, not with God. There is not a cosmic battle between God and the devil. You know why? The devil is a creature. He is a created being. He does not stand a chance against God. We shouldn't read the Bible wondering like, "Will God win?" God won from day 1. He he won from day 1. But but where's the battle being waged? It's being waged between the devil and you and me. And we see that teaching all through the New Testament. The devil's like a roaring lion prowling about seeking one to steal and kill and devour. He's at war with us. And that's frightening, isn't it? You read through the New Testament and you read about this spiritual battle and it's, it's, it's frightening to know that the devil is real and that he hates me. But it's the truth. And yet, as alarming as it might be, it can't be disorienting because here in the first promise of the Bible, we hear how the story ends. God promises the serpent here in the opening pages of Scripture, He promises our enemy that a woman will give birth to a child. And though he will be struck on the heel, he'll be wounded, he will deliver a blow to the enemy's head. So this promise is what Bible scholars refer to as the Proto-Evangelium. The first glimpse of the Gospel in the Bible. That's what it means. First Gospel. And the promise is that there is a champion that is coming. That is coming a liberator that is coming who is going to restore to us everything that we lost at the fall. And so this is meant to shape the way that we read the Old Testament now. So as we as you flip through the, your Bible and you're reading through your Old Testament, now this should be framing your question. You're asking the question, is this the child that God promised would come? Is this the champion? Is this the one who's going to crush that serpent's head and get us back into right relationship with God? And so as we read through the Old Testament, that is is shaping the drama. Maybe you're here today and and you you love reading just good narrative. You love reading good drama. Man, the Bible is an incredible story. If I wasn't a Christian, I would read the Bible and love it. And here we're finding this this line that tracks through the story. And we're waiting for a hero that's going to rise up. And so as these people appear in the Old Testament, we think, is this the one? So Adam and Eve are out of the garden, and in chapter 4 they have babies. And you've got to wonder if Adam and Eve are thinking, oh, good, because it has been a hard few years. But the champion will hopefully be one of these two, and we'll get back into the garden, and we will have served our 10-year sentence or whatever. Do they, like, do they have a framework for God's timeline? So they've got Cain and they have Abel. And Abel actually looks to be a promising young man. God's pleased with Abel. Abel brings an offering to God and it's generous and God is pleased with the heart of Abel. And maybe this is the champion. Until Cain kills him in a field. And then you think, oh no. And Adam and Eve are thinking, well, they're grieving obviously, not to make light of it. But, but we're living in a battle. That's what they're thinking. This is, this is as God promised. A battle is being waged even within us. And then we meet Noah and he's a righteous man. So righteous, in fact, that God delivers Noah and his whole family and saves them from this flood that he, he sends to the earth to judge us for all of our sin and our wickedness. But not Noah. He's righteous. And you read that and you think, well, perhaps this is the son of the woman who's going to set it right. And then He steps out into this world that has been washed from its sin. He steps into essentially a new Eden. And you think, new Eden? New Adam. He's the one. And what does He do immediately? He gets so drunk that he blacks out naked. And you're reading the story and you think, not what I expect. He's not the one. Then you meet Abraham and he's a man of faith. And you go, well, perhaps he is the one. But then you see that he's also a liar and he's a coward. And he frequently disbelieves God's promises and takes matters into his own hands. And, but then you meet Jacob, another liar. And then you meet Moses. He's a murderer. Then you meet David. And you think, surely this must be the one. The text tells us he's a man after God's own heart. He is literally a giant slayer. He's a man of prayer. But we read on and we come to find that he's a sinner just like, if not worse, than many of the rest. He's a wife-stealer, a power-exploiter, a murderer. And by the end of the Old Testament, we're despairing. And we're asking the question, where is the hero that you promised God? Where is the child that you, would, you said would be born? The boy who would crush the serpent's head. And I'm going to step aside for a moment here. That's the longing that is met for the first Advent. So, we, uh, Josh alluded to it earlier with our reading. He said that Advent is a time when we remember the coming of Jesus into our world. But there's a second element of Advent, isn't there? Because He says that He's coming again. So He came and He fulfilled all of these promises that we're going to be considering. But did you know that there are promises that are yet unfulfilled? There are promises that we are still waiting for. The time when He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death and no more pain. And the Lord will be in our midst. And and the new heavens and the new earth will be set in place. And we are longing for that day when He will set it right. Because we're still living in groaning, aren't we? Romans 8 says the creation groans under the weight of sin. And we're groaning, and maybe you're here today, and we're still waiting. But listen to the way that He answered this first longing. You come to the end of the Old Testament, and they are longing. In Matthew 1, however, we read this. I'm going to read verse 18-21. to Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And as you read that, and if you've been reading through the Old Testament, and you've been reading through sequentially, and you've been waiting for the child that is to come, that comes like a ray of sunshine bursting, sunshine bursting through the darkness, doesn't it? This is Him. The wait is over. Our God is a promise keeper. And the child that He said who would come, He has come 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem. The Savior who came to reverse the curse. The Savior who came to set us free from the tyranny of sin and death. The Savior who came to restore to us all that we had lost has come. And we are Christians, which means we believe that to be true. And that fills us with hope as we wait for His second coming. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, but He appeared. And maybe there's someone here today, somebody here, and, and you're here, and you've not put your trust in Jesus, and you are, are feeling that sin and error, you're pining, you're longing for something. You come in here today, and, and, and perhaps you're not expecting to hear anything from God, but you, you do come in with an awareness that this world is very broken. You see the brokenness out there, and that's scary, but you know what's scarier is the brokenness you see in here. You see defect, uh, affections that are out of order. You see relationships that are torn. And you see a longing that cannot be fulfilled. And you know that something isn't right. And as, perhaps as you heard about what you were made for, what we had, life and dominion and intimacy and relationship with the God who made you, perhaps as you heard that, just maybe, the Spirit of God was stirring something in your heart saying, this is it. This is why you're here today. This is what you need. I don't know if if that person is in the room today, but if you are, I want you to listen closely because I'm going to tell you about Jesus. The Savior who came to bring you back to life. See, Jesus did come. And He defeated our enemy in the most unexpected way. This child of promise has come. And here's how He did it. In His sinless perfection, He accepted in His body the curse for Our sin, the curse for my sin, the the curse for his sin and for her sin and for your sin, all the rebellion, all of the evil, all of the things that you've done, perhaps even today, that should forever separate us from our holy God and keep us barred from the garden. Jesus assumed all of that in his own flesh, soaked it up like a sponge. And then bearing our sin, He went to the cross on our behalf, carrying this with Him. And the devil at this moment is thinking that He has won. As the nails are driven into His hands and feet, as Jesus cries out, it is finished, our enemy thinks, I've done it. I've dealt the final blow. But it was only a strike at the heel. See, when Jesus died upon the cross, He took... The curse of sin. And He bore it upon Himself. He became sin who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. He took the curse. He soaked it up like a sponge. And then He he paid for it in full. He satisfied God's just requirements. And He removed the curse from us as far as the east is from the west. And in doing so, Jesus made a way for you, for me, to come back home to God. Or oh, what is the way? You say, Jesus told us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I want you to hear that today, that Jesus is the way home. If you will repent of your sin, and perhaps that feels like a, a foreign word to you, to repent of your sin is to confess it to God and to turn away from it. Now that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect from here on out, but that means the things that He's revealed in your life, the things that right now He's showing you, if, if you want me, then this, this has to go. Those things that He's exposing right now, if you confess it to God and let it go and turn from it, and if you put your trust in Jesus, that He paid for your sin on the cross, then just like that, you have a new life. Just like that, you are in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Just like that, you have been engrafted into a new family. And can I tell you something? In this family, it's a family that inherits the blessing rather than the curse. In this family, we're a family that will experience resurrection from the dead. It's a family that will enjoy eternal life and dominion and perfect intimacy and God. A family that will live in a new Eden with the true and better Adam forever. And so I would ask you, Will you be there with him? Will you be there with him? There doesn't need to be any uncertainty as you wrestle through that question. Jesus has made the way for you. Surrender your life to him. Put your trust in him and come home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Oh God, we love you. I pray that You would press Your truth deep into our hearts today by the power of Your Spirit. I thank You that You always preach a better sermon than anything that comes out of the mouth of anyone behind this pulpit or any pulpit. Because it's Your Word. It's Your truth. It's Your Spirit that opens our ears. It's Your Spirit that applies the truth to our hearts. And so I'm asking, God, that You would do a miracle today. That You would bring a heart of stone to life. That today a heart of stone would become a heart of flesh. That today a person who is separated from You because of sin would be brought into the family of God as they confess their sin and trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You that You are the God who brings us home. God, and we confess that there's not one of us here today who deserves this grace. That's why it's called grace, God. We can't earn it. Not one of us, God. Not one of us deserves it. And yet, You've extended it to us freely through your Son. God, we thank you that you sent your Son into this broken world. That 2,000 years ago, a, a little baby boy, his cry pierced the night. And that little boy, fragile and frail as he was, was the eternal living God of the universe condescended down to be with us, one of us, to walk among us, so that we could be free, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to be the true and better Adam, to set free the hell-bound man. God, You have done it. And because You have done it in the past, we know, God, that You will keep Your promise. Lord Jesus, You will return. And You will set all things right. And the dead, those who have passed on before us, will be raised and God, we will be raised with them and we'll receive new life and we will live with you in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And it will be infinitely beyond our greatest imagination and expectation. God, I pray that as we go today, God, that all of the sweet pleasures of life, God, the, the joy that we feel as we, we look at our loved ones, the the sweet taste of our food, God, the sun on our face, that all of those little moments of of pleasure would turn our hearts to look forward with hope and expectation to glory with you, God, because everything that we enjoy in this life is just the tiniest foretaste of what you've made us to enjoy forever. God, so let all of these little pleasures, let them stir our hearts and affections for you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?